I think I was so desperate to be involved with Canva that I always felt just excited to work on whatever I could. I liked cooking. I was excited to cook lunch. I was curious about support. I think the most uh, important thing is to ultimately focus on what's going to have the biggest impact. It's really, really critical to actually being able to grow with a company is to not be attached to a particular area and, and just to be excited about having the biggest possible impact and learning. And there's always going to be someone better than you at a particular field. And so I think not being threatened by that and seeing that as an opportunity to grow yourself is really important. Welcome to In Depth, a new show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, their companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. Through over 400 interviews on the review, we've shared standout company building advice. The kind that comes from those willing to skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. With our new podcast, In Depth, you can listen in to these deeper conversations every single week. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In Depth, I'm really excited to be joined by Zach Kitschke, CMO of Canva, which is an online design and publishing tool. Since launching in 2013, Canva has grown from an Australian startup to a global company with 60 million monthly active users, over 2,000 employees, and a valuation of over $40 billion. Zach has been there for that entire journey, holding a really interesting mix of positions. He started out as one of Canva's first employees, leading comms efforts around their initial launch and fundraise. But since then, he's done everything from answering support tickets and cooking the team lunch to serving as a product lead and spinning up the people function. Since the beginning of this year, however, he's been overseeing all of Canva's international brand and growth efforts as their CMO. If you've listened to the podcast before, you know that I'm really interested in the underexplored success stories in tech. And I think Zach's career history gives him a really unique vantage point on why Canva worked and the unique moves that helped their success compound over time. We start off by focusing on the early days, from unpacking all the work that went into their launch to talking through how they leverage design workshops to improve the product. Zach shares some really interesting tactics, including how they shaped the narrative for journalists, and how they got Guy Kawasaki to join as Canva's chief evangelist. Next, we dig into all of the work that went into supporting and scaling the team during hypergrowth. Canva has several practices around onboarding, learning and development, and keeping the team connected that were really interesting to hear about. From vision decks, strategy docs, and a specific skills framework to their chaos to clarity spectrum and season opener ritual for making company planning just a bit more fun. There are also some really interesting startup lessons from the story of his own growth and what he figured out personally along the different chapters in his career at Canva, including how to leverage advisors and when to bring someone else in to take over your role. Whether you're a marketer, a founder, a people leader, or a product manager, I think there are tons of helpful takeaways for everyone in this conversation. I really hope you enjoy this episode. And now my conversation with Zach. All right. Well, Zach, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. So I thought one of the ways that we could divide up the time is try to go back in time go chapter by chapter through the company's life and pick apart some of the different insights and things that you figured out along the way. And I thought maybe the place to start, we could go all the way back to day zero through 12 or 18 months of the company's life. And the product was developed for quite a period of time. It wasn't something that it was four weeks and then ship a product startup journey. And so I'm curious what that early time looked like. And maybe when you 
go back and dissect it, what do you think you got right that enabled such a special company to be created? I first started at Canva in a contract role to come in and help with our very first funding announcement. And so I think it was March of 2013 when I first met Mel and Cliff and started contracting at that point. And I remember the outsized ambition from Mel and Cliff and Cam at that point. I think we were planning to launch the product within the next sort of month or two. Lo and behold, it ended up being August of that year. So months and months later. And and I think the thing that we did really well then, which has been something that has continued you know, the whole way along, was that obsession with making sure that the product was actually perfect. And I think it went, went against the wisdom of the time. This was when books like The Lean Startup were really in vogue. You know, Mel in particular really persevered and didn't want to launch the product until it was perfect. And I remember for the first period, everyone was so excited about this product that we were building, this idea that we were going to transform design. But it was actually months before I um, I even saw the very first version of the product itself. The engineering team were working really hard on actually building it. And from a marketing point of view, we were planning to launch it. I remember the first experience one day, we all got access to the alpha version. I was really, really excited and, and went down I was actually going to see some friends in my hometown where I grew up, sat down to give them a demo of the product. And I started designing an invitation to a party as as a bit of an example. And of course, the product crashed and it was pretty buggy at that point. And so, you know, it was this period of really sticking at it, making sure that it was actually perfect. And we did a lot of early user testing and spent a lot of time seeing people experience the products and ultimately didn't launch it until we had something that we really felt comfortable with. How did you know that it was time to ship it or that it was in a state that would resonate with customers? We had spent such a long time building this product. The core idea for Canva was you'd take this incredibly complex, fragmented process of creating a design, which in the past you'd have to go and purchase expensive design software. You'd have to spend months, if not years, learning how to use it. You actually get into programs like Photoshop or InDesign. And then the actual process of designing means you had to go to stock photography websites, stock layout websites, stock font websites, do all of the design process to actually collaborate or share it with anyone would involve emails back and forth and PDF versions that you'd lose track of. And so we launched Canva with this view of bringing that all into one place and and making the experience simple. And so I remember we'd spent all of this time building the product and we were really, really excited to actually get it into the hands of some of our community And at that point, we actually set up some design workshops in Surrey Hills, where we're still based today and had some real people come in. We also used a tool called usertesting.com, which really helped us out along the way. And we're also excited to see what people thought of the product. And the first response was really disappointing and underwhelming for this product that we'd all spent months and months in the case of Mel and Cliff years working on. And people got into the product and they just could not understand how to use it. And so, of course, that showed us that we weren't ready to launch. And so we then went into this process of iterating and iterating and iterating, basically running different tests of our onboarding experience. And the insights that we gained from that actually helped perfect the UI to make sure that people intuitively understood how to use the product. And it was simple things like we built out a set of, we called them the five starter challenges to guide you step-by-step through creating a design. So on the first page, it would say, change the color of this circle to the color red. And uh, we'd sort of test that out and, and saw people couldn't figure out our color picker. And so small things in the UI, like changing the color picker to a circle that was blue, the same color as the circle on the page. And so people then figured out that they needed to click that to change the color to red. Uh, Fun things like explaining how to search within Canva. So we had a a photo of a monkey on the page and said, search for a hat to put on the monkey. And then people would do that. And so through iteration after iteration, we were able to get to the point where everyone that we tested it on really deeply understood the product and had a real uh, lot of fun using it. How did you think about your ideal customer in the early days? And one of the reasons I'm so curious about that is that I would assume that figuring out who this new design tool is for was really important in the sense that if you went out of the gate and you targeted 
high-end photographers that were doing photo retouching in New York on multi-million dollar shoots, and they picked up this tool, they wouldn't be satisfied with it relative to what they were doing in Photoshop. And so my guess is that you picked a specific type of customer and then over a very long period of time kind of expanded that aperture as functionality and feature set grew. And so I'm interested, what did those early customers look like or how did you figure out who it was right for today versus tomorrow versus the next day? That's exactly right. And in those early days, we did spend a lot of time with folks, getting them into the product and, you know, talking to a lot of people. Uh, I mentioned that we started to run design workshops and we'd invite different groups of people that we could kind of rustle together uh, into our office in Surrey Hills. We'd actually get down to the local library and, and sort of advertise these design workshops and would get a mix of people in and would teach them some fundamentals of design. But at the same time, it was literally the best possible way to understand the experience that they would have with the platform. And in those early days, I started to identify this group of people that had a really frequent use case for visual content. And that was social media marketers and content creators. And so uh, we really started to zero in on that community in those early days. We really made sure that it was a great experience to actually create social media posts in the product, things like graphics for Twitter, Pinterest, Facebook at that point in time, created a whole lot of templates that were perfect there, started blogging, writing about social media topics and trends, going to conferences and events in that space. And we really had this groundswell there. One area I'd love to spend a little bit more time, and you touched on this, is obviously you've had a whole variety of roles over the course of the incredible growth of the company, but most of it has touched different parts of distribution, PR, comms, marketing, etc. And you talked a little bit about this when you were talking about workshops, but I'm really interested in what are the things you did to go from one user to 10, 10 to 100, 100 to 1,000, 1,000 to maybe 10,000, kind of the little tactics or things that you did in the early days that really drove that early growth? I'll talk about PR firstly. You know, that was ultimately what I, I was hired firstly to do. I guess prior to joining Canva, I was writing for a small publication covering startups in Sydney and, and around Australia. And that was actually funded by one of the local incubators here. And so that would had become a really fantastic way for me to meet a whole lot of founders and local investors and folks like that. Like a lot of startups that ended up failing. And so I was out of a role and looking for work. And so reached out to a few people. And, and fortunately, Nikki Shivak, one of the uh, investors from Blackbird, a, a local fund here, introduced me to Mel and Cliff and, and sort of said, we've just invested. I don't think they're looking for anyone right now, but you should connect and have a chat. And so you know, I met up with Mel and Cliff and it sounded really exciting what they were building. I was really, really keen to get involved. I could tell after that first coffee at the cafe around from the small early office that I hadn't done a very good job of selling myself. So I went home that night and put together a big long list of um, ideas that I thought I could come in and help them out with. One of those being helping with their first funding announcement and ultimately the launch. And so PR in the early days became a really great way for us to get the word out, particularly here in Australia, in the US as well. We had a really interesting story at that point in time for a few reasons. The first reason being we had just closed a $3 million seed round, which was the largest seed round ever raised by an Australian company at that point in time. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you know, there were some other interesting parts of the story too. Mel and Cliff had spent months and months and months back and forth between Sydney and San Francisco. Mel had slept on her, her brother's floor for months, pitched hundreds of investors. But ultimately that first round came together from a whole bunch of folk associated with the Mai Tai Network, which is basically this kite surfing unconference. And so there's a few really interesting elements of the story that just made it a sort of a sort of intriguing startup at that point in time. And so the way that we ended up approaching it was we knew there was going to be a little bit of, of time between the funding and, and actually launching. And so decided to take a bit of a stealth approach. And so we announced the funding round. We talked about the fact that we had this vision to change the world of design and, you know, we're able to talk about 
the interesting community of investors that had come together to invest in this you know, startup from the other side of the world. And so uh, was able to drum up some early coverage of our funding round. And something else that we did really well at that point, I think, in hindsight, was we used that as an opportunity to drive people to a waiting list that we created. And so by the time we actually launched, we'd gathered 50,000 people's emails that were excited to get on Canva. And so between the funding and actually rolling out the products, we did a second announcement, which we actually unveiled what the product was and, and what it would do. And so, you know, did a whole range of interviews and provided the UI of the platform and, and demoed it to journalists at, at that point. Um, and so by the time we launched, we actually had this sort of hype and excitement from uh, a community of people that were ready to get involved and um, were really excited to get on the product. What type of publications did you pitch back then? Uh, literally everyone. I tried pitching every single reporter that I could find at that point. I had some connections here in Australia, folks that I'd sort of worked with or come into contact with. And so pitched them in the Australian press. TechCrunch, Pando Daily at the time did some really great coverage of the funding round story. Uh, you know, there was a lot more reporters that didn't respond to me, but ultimately there were some that did. Do you think that strategy still can work today? I just feel like it's so much harder to get anyone to write about an early stage technology company today. I think at that point in time, that was also the feeling as well. Ultimately, PR comes down to the story that you're able to tell. And I think it's uncovering what is interesting or unique about what you're doing that sets you apart. Maybe you can talk about what is the story that you crafted that you think captured some of the interest or attention of reporters in those early days? Sure. A good story is something different or unexpected or unique. And so for us, that was identifying the elements of the Canvas story that set us apart, I guess, from other companies, uh, maybe in Silicon Valley or even in Australia. And the prevailing wisdom at that point in time was that you had to be in Silicon Valley, you had to be in San Francisco. Uh, and that was something that Mellon Cliff had heard time after time from various investors. The other really interesting story of how Mel had pitched hundreds of investors in order to pull the round together, this story of determination and persistence, battling through everything that went with actually getting the round together there as well. And I guess the other element was just how long the idea for Canva had been brewing. Mel and Cliff started their first company, Fusion Books, back in, I think it was 2007. So actually built this really successful school yearbook business, which became the largest school yearbook platform in Australia, France and New Zealand. They demonstrated that they could build a business. They'd bootstrapped that the whole way along. So ultimately there was these four really interesting elements of the story, which set them apart and made it an interesting story to unpack for, for journalists at that time. How did you then approach the evolution of that story between years one and two and three? Because I assume what happened is you found these unique angles to kind of repackage the narrative of the company. And then you tell that story. And then you have to go find another story to get people interested again as the company evolves. And what did that process look like? It felt like we told the same story over and over and over again, uh, and people were really interested in the journey. However, I think what we did to try and evolve the narrative over time was looking for milestones of growth along the way that gave us a reason to reach back out to reporters. And so following the launch, the next big announcement I can remember was when we brought Guy Kawasaki on as our chief evangelist. We had, I think it was a couple hundred thousand users at that point. You know, it was a very, very small company compared to what we are today. And so people were asking, like, why is Guy joined this company from Australia? And then, of course, there was the next funding round. I and mean, something that I think we did really well at that point was we started to learn that reporters 
don't cover product unless you're a major tech company. And so the thing that at that point everyone was interested in was funding rounds. And so whenever we announced a funding round, we would actually tie it or hold it off until we had a product announcement to go out as well. And so when we launched what's now Canva Pro, at the time it was Canva for Work, our premium Pro subscription, we actually announced that with a funding round at that point in time. And so reporters wanted to cover the funding, (laughs) but when we were asked why if you raise this round, we were able to talk about the product and what we were setting out to do with Canva for Work at that point in time. What was the story behind Guy Kawasaki becoming the chief evangelist? Where did that idea come from and what was that role in the early days? I don't think it's something that a lot of startups think about these days. It was really opportunistic, I think. You know, we're in our first office space sitting there building the product and and trying to figure out how to spread the word. And, And, you know, one afternoon, I remember someone else on the team said, I think Guy Kawasaki has been using us for his graphics. And we actually, you know, jumped on and, and there was this post, which was a graphic that, that he'd posted and someone had replied to him and said, are you using Canva? I love it. And so we were like, oh my gosh, we need to chat to him. And so Cliff actually reached out. We ended up jumping on a call with Guy and, and found out that it was actually Peg, his social media manager, who'd been a huge fan of Canva and had been using it for a lot of his graphics. And so a couple of weeks later, coincidentally, we were going to be in the US and so actually went up and met with Guy and you know, talked through the vision for Canva and the product and he loved it and totally saw where we were going. We were keen to bring him on. He obviously had this large community that followed him online. He'd done a lot of speaking, prolific in the social media space. And so there was a lot of great alignment there. We talked about it and and he ultimately decided to come on board and we're thinking about the story and how do we frame that up. He'd been chief evangelist at Apple, which he was well known for. And so he ultimately agreed to become chief evangelist for Canva, which is only the second time that he'd had that title. And so we were able to generate some awareness uh, of that. And and people were really interested to find out why he joined. And he originally came on in a full-time role? It wasn't full-time. So at that point, Guy was traveling the world doing keynotes almost every week and doing a lot of content online. But it was actually because he was doing, you know, those things that he was able to help spread the word about Canva. He'd sort of drop us into every presentation that he was doing or if he was running a workshop or opportunities to share the word, he would be doing that. That's so clever. So we talked about leveraging Guy as an evangelist. We talked about some of the early press strategies and just basically pitching and or begging any reporter anywhere to write a story. And I actually think probably the long tail of that is a little bit underappreciated in that I think everybody's like, oh, I want a story in New York Times or whatever. But the compounding benefit of having lots and lots of long tail publishers linking back to your product, writing about your product can be super powerful. But I'm curious, what are the other things that you did in those early days to go from like 100 to 1,000 1,000 to 10,000, 10,000 to 100,000? I'd say the focus for us always started with the product. And I think that's been ultimately the key to our success. I think that obsessiveness with the early experience, seeing people, you know, in user testing or in workshops and not being satisfied until they had a seamless experience and the product lived up to our hope for them. We've always invested in a really incredibly generous free product. And so, you know, these days we have more than 70 million people using Canva, literally every country around the world in a hundred different languages to create content every month. And the vast majority of those people still use Canva for free. And that's intentional. We want to make sure that no matter who you are, wherever you are in the world, your financial position, where you live, shouldn't prevent you from accessing a tool like Canva. The secondary benefit to that has been that all of these people that use and and love Canva ultimately are advocates for the products as well and and will tell, tell other people about their experience. And so to this day, word of mouth um, continues to be one of our largest drivers of growth. 
How did the freemium model fit into the early growth strategy? And how did you figure out what to charge for or how to charge for it? And maybe how that might have changed over time? Sure. We had been out there as a product from the tail end of 2013 and had really focused on that core experience for that first period of time. We set out to build our paid offering and we're looking at different features and functionality that we could offer. The idea was always that we would offer things that real power users would need or would would be additive over and above the free experience there. It was actually really interesting, I think, how we partnered with our community to help build that product in the same way that we invited people in early on for those design workshops. We actually worked with a number of larger organizations as we were building the product for work. I remember it was still running our customer support at that point in time. And we had an email come through from a graphic designer at Huffington Post. And they said, you know, can we chat to someone? We're big fans of Canva, uh, but we've got some real challenges in the newsroom that we'd love to see if we could help solve. And so ended up connecting and got over to New York and, and spent some time with the, the newsroom uh, there. And what became really, really clear was that they had this problem. You know, they had hundreds of journalists creating content, social media editors, et cetera, creating content to get their work out there. And the pace meant that people were creating a huge number of graphics every day, but they were finding that people were posting stuff on their their social profiles that had the wrong colors or outdated fonts or they were totally off brand. And so we spent some time with them understanding that problem. And at that point, we had templates in Canva that we created that anyone could use. And it was really, really clear what they needed was actually branded templates for Huffington Post. And so sat down and in the space of probably a day or two, we actually figured out how to hack something together for them. And so what we did was we created some designs based on what they wanted for their social posts and turn them into templates. And we actually put those graphics with the links into Canva on a very hacky WordPress page at that point. And they ended up sharing that within their newsroom. And so that hacky WordPress page um, ended up becoming effectively the prototype for our team templates in Canva. It was amazing having Huffington Post uh, able to kind of respond and give us real feedback um, in those early days. And I'm very proud to say they're still using Canva today. And is that how you approached the early days of product building? You would go deep with a specific type of customer, maybe figure out what they needed, or maybe most importantly, what they would pay for, prototype, and then scale? Yeah, it was definitely a matter of understanding what people really struggled with or what would help them be more effective or efficient. Another feature that we came up with as part of that early Canva for Work product was called Magic Resize. And similarly, we saw this challenge. uh, Anyone that's creating content is generally not just creating a post for social media, but they're also creating a blog graphic, an email header. There's a variety of formats for every social platform. And so one of the really time-consuming processes for folks at that point was to actually manually recreate every graphic that they needed in all the different dimensions with the different layouts. And so that became the seed of an idea. We thought, wouldn't it be cool if you could resize your design to all of the formats that you need with one button? And that was how Magic Resize was born. So I want to talk a little bit about going from a super small team, your first few hundred users scaling into your first few thousand, and what the organization looked like at the time, and maybe some of the ideas that you all implemented as you started to grow, whether it be how you approached hiring your first handful of folks, how you approached organizing the team, or things that really enabled you to continue to grow the business? At every stage along the way, you're constantly needing to rethink and evaluate the best way to operate as a team to get things done. And there was some really pivotal shifts that we saw, you know, over time that come with a team that's growing. In the early days, we literally would all fit around one desk in the first office. And I remember getting to the point where we no longer fit and we... (laughs) 
we had to split into two tables and um, there was debates over which table should be called table number one and which table should be called table number two. So we ended up with table one and table A to keep everyone happy. But there were some other shifts that we saw. And so we ended up going through a few phases. There was only a few of us that weren't engineering. So we had engineering and we divided engineering into front end and back end. And we soon learned that that wasn't great because you need front end and back end collaborating around problems. And so then we formed into small teams and we organized teams around very clear goal or mission. And we ended up growing with that approach and that became a really effective way to manage the, the startup as it was as it was scaling. Then at some point we ended up with a hundred different teams and of course that became unwieldy and impossible to manage. And so we started to form into groups. And so the groups have really been the basis for which we've continued to scale. What are examples of groups? So I remember when we first formed the groups, at that point in time, some of the groups that we brought together were things like our app store and our app store group is responsible for all of the different integrations. You know, we've got apps that plug into Canva, you know, to bring your content in from different places or allow you to publish to platforms like Dropbox or Facebook or or others. And so we kicked off the App Store group. We had a group dedicated to our iPhone and, and Android app experience and a range of others digging in a little bit to some of these ideas around scaling and people that I thought would be fun to explore some of the stuff you've done around learning and development and coaching. And you have this idea of Canva University, and maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Following my involvement with the product space, the next sort of chapter for me was stepping in to build our people group. And so at that point in time, we had a recruitment team and we had one or two people in HR, but there was no formal people group. And so, you know, Mel and Cliff asked me to to take that on and to start thinking about building out our people group. And so I uh, spent a lot of time, I guess we, you know, a couple of us went over to Dreamforce and um, ended up arranging a bunch of different meetings with different companies and you know, companies that we thought did people and culture really well, you know, learned a lot, read a lot, listened to a lot of podcasts. And so then started to build out the team. And one of the first things that we did was to launch Canva University. And I guess the idea for that really came about for a few reasons. The first being that as a company that growing, uh, doubling year on year, the thing that just stood out to me was that first period of someone coming into the company is actually pivotal to them getting up to speed, feeling confident, getting the context that they need to do their job well, and and also to manage pre-load some of the challenges that come with scale. And so we started to build Canva University with the idea that it would run all of our internal learning and training and onboarding. With onboarding specifically, we definitely saw some patterns as people were coming in. And one of the very first exercises we did was actually to sit down and did a focus group or a workshop with different cohorts of people. So people that had just gotten, say, an offer for Canva, people that were in week one, people that were in month one, month three, month six. And it was really interesting. We ended up getting people to plot how they were feeling, if you imagine the axes being sort of happy or or sad um, or, you know, positive or negative or whatever it might be. And we'd see this really interesting S-curve. And so, you know, when people took on the job and, and first started, there was this excitement and this enthusiasm and people were so keen to get involved and be part of this thing. Uh, The onboarding, you know, first couple of weeks, people would start to realize the things that they didn't know and start to get further in. And and you'd sort of see sometimes some imposter syndrome or feeling like they didn't have all the context. And so you'd see this dip that would happen, this period there. And then slowly over the, you know, the following few months, people's experience would pick up again as they got more confident. They got some wins on the board. They started to understand how the pieces all fit together. And so as we started to think about our first onboarding experience, I guess we designed it in a way that targeted the experiences that people were having at different points in time to try and make sure that we were giving them the workshops or the information to read or the coaching or the check-ins with you know, their mentor um, at the right points in time and would sort of measure ourselves against that journey. So that was onboarding. And then I guess with Canva University, 
that's really helped us scale out our whole learning program internally. We've ended up evolving this framework called the 12 skills that are the 12 skills that we've identified over time that we really see as making people really successful at Canva. And so we've built targeted workshops and training on, on specific skills like giving great feedback or writing strategy docs that's continued to scale as we've added more offices and different types of challenges along the way. You mentioned a couple of the modules or skills. Can you expand on that a little bit and talk about maybe the most salient ones or the ones that are maybe most unique or important to the way that you behave as a company? It's really interesting how that framework evolved. So when we were in the sort of early hundreds, we actually did our very first feedback process for the team and we ran a 360 degree feedback process. And so everyone you know, could nominate a few people to, to give them feedback that they worked with together. And it was all sort of open text. So the question was, what is so-and-so superpower or what do they do really, really well in? And the second question was, what can they do to improve? And it was really interesting seeing all of the feedback that came uh, through. Mel, with her system sort of thinking, started to unpack and we, we started to look really closely at that. And it was interesting seeing that the feedback all grouped into similar themes. So it was either things that people were struggling with or that could improve on or that people were doing well. And so that ended up evolving into this set of four categories that we identified. You know, the first being your craft, how technically strong you were, your experience as an engineer or a designer or a product manager or, you know, in comms. The second being strategy, how are you able to break down a problem, you know, figure out how to get from A to B, make things happen quickly, things like that. The third being communication, uh, how proactive are you, how effective are you, you know, are you emotionally intelligent in the way that you communicate, are you sensitive to others, can you write well, can you speak well, things like that. And then the fourth area that really stood out was leadership and coaching, you know, how do you go at an individual level in, you know, in terms of personal leadership, but also how do you go in terms of coaching others or running teams. And so we ended up with those sort of four categories. And within each of those categories now, there's there's three different skills. But we always spoke about it as being, you would never be, it's almost impossible to be the superstar across all of those areas. You generally spike in maybe one or two areas and, and different roles will require that of you. And so it became a really useful framework for us and a language to use internally. And then as we've evolved as a way to scale things like learning and training and coaching and feedback and, and all of those things. Something we haven't dug into that is kind of an offshoot of what you just talked about, Zach, is your own journey throughout the life of the company and the different roles that you've assumed. I'm specifically interested when you think about these four capabilities and your own areas of strengths and weaknesses and how you chose to grow and evolve within the company, maybe how those things fit together in each of your chapters in the company's life. Sure. So I think we've spoken about the first chapter, which is really that comms role. In those early days, I ended up taking on a bunch of other things that fit into the category of if you weren't an engineer, you could do. So things like so I took over cooking lunches from Cliff, who was, was sort of doing that before me. And I started cooking lunch every day for the team and then uh, ended up there was no one else to do it. So I took on our customer service early on. And so, you know, I was doing that. And at some point, those two things ended up taking up more than half my day. And so Cliff said, we need you to be working on comms and marketing and, and those sorts of things. And so that became kind of the first time where I hired someone. So hired Song, who's uh, one of our amazing chefs, and he's still here, you know, with us in, in Sydney today. Hazel took on customer uh, service from me, responding to our email tickets and messages on social, ended up scaling the team around that. I'd say the next chapter was really that period of jumping into product and helping with the Canva for Work launch. And that was a mix of, of doing both the comms there, but also spending time with you know, the customers like Huffington Post and the team internally, learning a really different sort of aspect of working and, and leading um, a product team for the first time time. Then with the people org, that chapter, there was a lot of building, a lot of hiring and a lot of strategy, I guess, sort of breaking down 
what did we need that group to be and and how do we get from A to B? And then more recently, for the last two years, I've been back really focusing on how do we now scale our marketing around the world as we really set out to realize that mission of empowering everyone to design. How did you figure out at each one of these changes that it was time to change and that whatever you were changing or going to was the highest and best use of your time? You know, definitely my story is a case of being a generalist and I've always had a real love of learning and having the opportunity to dive into different areas that I may not have done before. You know, I'd definitely done some communications through the blogging that I'd done and, you know, through, you know, some previous work in comms, but coming into Canberra, that was definitely, you know, they were definitely the biggest journalists that I'd pitched or, you know, this was definitely the the sort of most serious work that I had been doing. And so, you know, gave it a shot and was learning along the way. Same thing with customer support, same thing with people. It's sort of this interesting balance in a company that's going through hyper growth because there's really two ingredients, I think, to tackling the next big frontier. And it's the right mix of context, like that organizational understanding, the understanding of the mission of the company, the understanding of how to get things done, coupled with what's the right insight or experience or advice that needs to be brought in in that area. And so I think the thing that I have had has been that context and that sort of ability to get things done and have had to couple that with ways to fill an experience gap or a knowledge gap. And so I think that's probably the crux of it in terms of knowing when's the right time to bring someone in and sort of learning what great looks like in a different area to one that you're familiar with. How did you think about your own wants and needs and maybe your own ego relative to what the company needed at any given point in time? Oh, look, I think I was so desperate to be involved with Canva that I always felt just excited to work on whatever I could. I liked cooking. I was excited to cook lunch. I was curious about support. The most important thing is to ultimately focus on what's going to have the biggest impact in a company that's changing so much change is the only constant. And so it's really, really critical to actually being able to grow with a company is to not be attached to a particular area and and just to be excited about having the biggest possible impact and and learning. And there's always going to be someone better than you at a particular field. So I think not being threatened by that and seeing that as an opportunity to grow yourself is really, really important. And so I think that's the reality in an organization like Canva is the team's never big enough. You've never got all the skills that you need. You never have people with all of the experience or knowledge. And so you have to supplement that through learning, growing, bringing in advisors in different areas and all of those sorts of things. And it's something we all need to be leveling up continuously of looking at those skills and, and how do we grow to actually fill that gap. On that point on advisors, I know that you've leveraged them throughout the company's life. Have you set those relationships up in a particular way or do you have a philosophy or approach to really getting the most out of different advisory type relationships? Yeah, we've had a lot of different advisors um, over the years for everything from figuring out how to internationalize Canva through to building people and culture, how to hire and build the team to marketing and and building a brand. And I think the three things that have become clear throughout that time is like the first question you really need to ask is what's someone's superpower? Like everyone that's great in a field or sort of has a reputation is generally good at a range of things, but excellent in one thing. And so what I think we've learned to do is to really zero in on what's that person's superpower. How do you really get that knowledge, whether it's growing SEO or 
figuring out how to localize a product at scale or building a brand. The second step is really figuring out what are some practical or tangible goals that they can help you achieve. Advisors can come in different shapes and sizes. And so for some, it's just sharing context or experience. They're not going to be doing a lot of work with or for you, but they'll be able to talk things through and and help you think. Other folks will be really, really happy to actually take on pieces of work. And we found that to be really, really helpful when you're hiring in a particular area and it's not something that you're familiar with. You're getting an advisor to actually help figure out the job spec or how to interview, giving feedback on potential candidates. And number three would be the quantity of time and the investment that they're able to make. And the way we've done that is to generally agree on a time commitment. And so someone might be able to spend a day a month or you know others a day a week and then you know you can put basically a time value on that either in terms of cash or or equity and that's worked really really well i wanted to pick up the thread that we started just a few minutes ago when you were talking about the ways that you leverage documentation you have this idea of strategy docs you have this idea of vision decks and was interested to learn more about those and how you leverage them at canva We have a few different tools or mechanisms that we use internally to communicate. One of those being Vision Decks. Canva is a very mission-driven company. At its core, the mission is to empower the world to design. Empowering the world means empowering ultimately everyone. So we're constantly looking out what are the big things that are going to take us forward to achieving that mission. And so we found Vision Decks to be a really great way. We do them in Canva, of course. And the goal there is really to lay out and communicate a vision, almost like you would pitch a vision for a startup. And we found dreaming about the future and and what the product and the platform will look like in years to come is a really important part of then being able to break that down and, and set goals around that. So, you know, vision decks are a way to dream, collectively bring together and, and tell a narrative and show what the future will look like. In terms of strategy docs, this is something that we've used uh, as well. And so, one of the important things in a fast paced, fast moving environment is the ability to communicate information, not just in terms of meetings or one on one conversations, but also asynchronously. And so, using strategy docs for projects or decisions or requests is a really, really great way to consolidate context. And so, you know, you tend to answer the key questions like who, what, where, when, how, why, you know, about something. And as a document in the same way as a a Slack channel, it becomes a, uh, a place that ideas can kind of build and grow or, you know, as you loop people into a project because you realize you need someone with different experience or another part of the company needs to be involved actually having those places that everyone can get up to speed and understand where a project or a decision is at has been really, really important. Is there a specific format to these documents or anybody can structure it in whatever way they want? We've actually ended up evolving a range of different strategy docs for different things. And so these days, one of my favorites is the one page of format. The structure there is giving background or context at the top, like what is this about? Why are we needing to make this decision? Putting together a recommendation, you know, or a proposed next step, laying out the context or supporting information, you know, things that are helpful there. And then, you know, a place for people to okay or, or you know, add comments or, you know, give a, an LGTM. And we've evolved, for example, for features that we'll build, there's a design doc template that lays out how we'll build that feature, you know, the user stories and things like that. And so different parts of of the company have evolved different templates that they can use. But ultimately, the core principle is capturing the key context in one place visually or in in written form and answering those key questions that make up a a story, who, what, where, when, how, why. It's amazing how valuable something that simple is. You can cut out so many meetings just by taking a minute to clarify your thoughts in a one page or have a bunch of people comment and move forward. And I'm not sure why it's not a part of the way that more companies operate. 
Totally. Everything's about speed and to wait till next Tuesday to have a meeting with these 10 people or to have to go and individually talk to folks and and explain all that context is almost redundant work. And so it's shortcutting communication because you can very quickly bring people up to speed on context or get input on a decision. And if you do need to have a meeting or a conversation, you've actually got a starting point and it can be really, really focused. It's only the things that you couldn't solve through a document or through Slack or more, more sort of asynchronous forms of communication. I wonder if it's, for whatever reason, people feel like it's actually slower and more work to write something down, when in almost all cases, it's it's so much more efficient, but there's some cognitive overhead or perception issue that, oh, it's just easier for four of us to get together and talk about it. And it never is. And it never is. <laughs> I agree. Another idea in this realm that you've thought about and talked a little bit about is this idea of chaos to clarity. And I'd be interested to have you explain that a little bit. Yeah, we talk about the chaos to clarity spectrum internally. And so I want you to imagine a line as I'm talking and on one side of the page, it's just this big giant scribble and you don't know what direction it's going in. And as you get to the other end, it starts to even out and slowly turns into a straight line that finishes off nice and clean. And I guess this we realized was a really good visual metaphor for pretty much any project or problem space that's requiring focus. Things always start out a little murky. There's a lot of problems to solve. Uh, There's a lot of chaos to unpack in order to figure out what are the right steps and actually get to clarity on, on something. And so we've found this has been a really, really useful framework for driving, you know, projects from start to finish and having a language around, you know, something being more in chaos land. And it's the, um, that at the start of the spectrum, chaos land is the land of dreaming big and potential and visionary thinking, and you get more and more refined. And at the other end, it's very, very specific steps or features or things like that. And I guess we found that people actually tend to have a sweet spot along that spectrum. Some people like knowing exactly what needs to be done. They don't like plans to change. They don't want to be involved in something until it's got some clarity or shape. And then you've got other people that really love dreaming. They can operate in that space and that's their preferred state. And so we've used that to understand uh, different types of people internally. One exercise we did one time was actually map out across the floor, you know, with our, during our all hands and we laid out the spectrum and we got people to stand at the different point, you know, in terms of what was their sweet spot in that uh, spectrum. Um, and then we also used it to describe the process to get something done, you know, at Canva. And so the way to move along the spectrum from chaos to clarity is ultimately to try and add more clarity at every step along the way. In the early stage, it might be getting a brainstorm together and chucking in a whole lot of different ideas, consolidating you know, everything that can be thought of. You might then move on to a vision deck as you kind of whittle it down and, and know broadly where you're going to go. You might then get to doing some designs if it's user experience or a strategy doc if it's organizing an event or something to do with the way that we organize uh, as a team and so on and so forth until you ultimately get to full clarity and deliver something. Another ritual you all have is this idea of a season opener. What is that about? Season openers have become such a pivotal part of the way that we operate in our culture. We started this off years ago now, and basically, as we were setting goals, we realized we needed a point in time to rally everyone to set their goals and sort of look ahead together. And so we were thinking about it and and we decided to go for seasons rather than quarters because we could have a bit of fun with it as well. And so started, launched our very first season opener. And the idea is we bring the whole company together once every three months at the start of the season. And we, in the early days, would get every team to basically pitch their vision, their next set of goals, almost as though they're a startup pitching. And so the whole company would do this and it would be just the most impactful way to get everyone on the same page about the breadth that was going on, 
we would celebrate you know major milestones or launches um, and have some fun around it too so for one of our early winter season openers the theme was the winter olympics and so everyone came dressed up as athletes from different sports we had uh, this kind of ridiculous olympic torch relay that culminated in us lighting this cauldron with fire we had this opening ceremony uh, you know, the snow inside, it was this big affair and we've done all sorts of different themes over the years. It's become part of the cultural fabric and something that people really, really look forward to every three months now at Canva. And, and as we've grown, it's it's obviously evolved as the company's gotten bigger, but we still use it to talk about our dreams and goals as well as the big major launches. And the most recent one we had, we actually took a, a five-year horizon and dreamt together about what the next few years could look like for Canva. That is such a cool idea. How do you structure it? Is it sort of like a giant all-hands meeting or what's the actual format when you get together as a company? It's been different because it's uh, it's obviously started as an in-person event. I mean, we did it in Sydney and then we actually did it in the Philippines as well. So it was a, an in-person event in our different offices and it's shifted online over the last 18 months, two years. And that's been really fun too. And when we were spending time as a company on Zoom for the first time with our weekly all hands, we made the decision to do it virtually. And it actually became this really different experience for the company actually being able to have everyone at the same time. And so that's been really fun as well and continued to have fun with the theme. You know, more recently, just because everyone's sort of on a, on a screen it sort of felt like it was a bit of a, a TV show. And so we um, we came up with Canva TV or CTV and, you know, had a lot of fun with different teams pretending to present different shows as a way to sort of showcase their launches. So I thought we could wrap up maybe by going full circle. We talked about distribution and marketing in the early days, and we haven't really talked that much about your most recent role now as CMO of Canva. And I'd be interested to learn a little bit about now that you're operating at this extraordinary scale, what are some of the unlocks that you've had or things that have worked exceptionally well as you've grown your distribution as a company? I think a lot of the same principles that we adhered to in the early days remain true today. We really do focus on the product experience and ultimately the product is our best marketing to date. You know, some of the things I think that we've done in that space in particular are really investing in building community and creating ways for our community members to, to get together, you know, share ideas and inspiration with each other and, and for us to support them. And so as an example, our education community in the Philippines is now in the tens of thousands. And, and that started as just a small community that the team there set up. Literally tens of thousands of teachers have got on board and, and use it to share lesson plans and inspiration with others. We you know, started doing webinars and, and workshops there through that growth. Organically, the Department of Education uh, in the Philippines got involved and, and has been supporting that effort. So focusing on community has been really important through our marketing as well. Really what we're trying to do is elevate and celebrate our community and the things that they're achieving. This year, we launched our first brand campaigns for Canva, which has been really exciting to see Canva you know, out there on TV and billboards and radio and things like that. But one of my favorite things about the most recent campaign that we launched called With Canva You Can is the fact that it's all centered around three stories of real Canva community members. We had Tiana who started this nonprofit, Youth Advocates for Change, and she put together a, a graphic in Canva and actually organized the Black Lives Matter walk across the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, the way that that design, she was able to mobilize 50,000 people there and is doing some incredible work. And so we're able to actually hear those stories and sort of share what they're doing with the world through that campaign. Awesome. So maybe to wrap up, are there books or things that you've read that have had a really lasting impact on you? One of my favorite books to share is called The Power of Moments. And it basically looks at how do people 
you know, think about experiences and basically it, it sort of uses a whole lot of different examples, but the core premise of the book is that people are willing to put up with quite a lot of meh if they have these peak moments and, and experiences. You know, the things that you remember looking back are generally the things that were really bad, like a terrible experience or the things that were really amazing and they're the things that stand out. And so the premise of the book is the place to actually focus if you want to create great experiences or moments is on creating peak moments. And there's one example in the book that I really, really love, which is about this hotel in Los Angeles. It's called like the Magic Castle. For a long time, it was like number two or three on TripAdvisor. So it was one of the most highly ranked hotels. And you look at the photos and you think like, what's that doing there? It's sort of just this like old dated hotel. But in the book, it, it unpacks this story and it says there was all this magic around the hotel that really made it a really unique place to stay. You'd, you know, you'd get into the foyer and there'd be a magician doing tricks you know, as you're checking in with the kids. There'd be this big library of DVDs and games, you know, everything you could imagine. There's a, a popsicle hotline by the pool and you press, you know, a button and within a couple of minutes, you've got, you know, a butler with a silver tray with all of the different colored popsicles for, for you to choose from. And I just think that's such a good metaphor for how, you know, how to think about experiences, whether it's how you onboard your team and, and create moments of, of celebration for people's milestones, whether it's their first or second or third anniversary, how do you make those special, that onboarding experience, doing a celebration to graduate them, or, you know, when you think about your, uh, your community that are using your product, how do you create those moments of magic, whether it's a moment like resizing a design with one click or even the fun that we've injected. You know, if you upload an image in Canva, I think it's like one in a hundred people will see as the water's filling up the bucket in the UI. If you're very lucky, you'll see a rubber ducky cruise across and putting those moments into experiences and creating those peaks. Such a great place to end. Zach, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's been great to, uh, to be here with you. Thanks for having me. 